Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 288th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Patrick Kilbane. Patrick is a partner and the director of the Divorce Advisory Group for Omen Wealth Partners, an independent RIA based in Jacksonville Beach, Florida, that oversees $800 million in asset center management for about 350 client households. What's unique about Patrick, though, is how he stepped away from a successful career as a family law attorney to transition into becoming a financial advisor who specializes in divorce with a unique value out of being able to work collaboratively with his former legal colleagues to provide support services for new clients who are going through the divorce process. In this episode, we talk in depth about how and why, after almost a decade of practicing family law and helping clients through divorce, Patrick made the transition to a financial advisor to better help his clients navigate the financial challenges that come with divorce. How Patrick leverages the professionalism, trust, and the connections that he'd built as a lawyer to gain referrals for him and his advisory firm and why, while he doesn't give any formal legal advice to clients, Patrick is able to utilize his knowledge of the law to offer specialized assistance to divorcing clients so they can better prepare for meetings with their lawyers during divorce proceedings. We also talk about how, after reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad while in college, Patrick realized his interest in personal finance and the ways that passive income can impact one's life, going so far as to invest his excess student loan money into a Vanguard S&P 500 fund. How Patrick tired of the grind as a lawyer, especially dealing with divorcing clients when they're at their worst, and the immense pressure he always felt as a lawyer to bill thousands of hours a year to clients and be collecting on those bills, and why Patrick walked away from his law practice just two weeks after becoming a partner at his firm so that he could pursue a career as a financial advisor while still retaining his status as an accomplished lawyer. And be certain to listen to the end, where Patrick shares why, even though he is appreciative of his years as a lawyer, as he could not be where he is today without it, he wishes he could have begun his career as a financial advisor much sooner in life. How Patrick understood that despite being an accomplished divorce lawyer, it was incredibly important to have a mentor who could guide him as he transitioned to his new career as a financial advisor. And how Patrick has lived a philosophy of trying to give his best effort every day to help his clients realize their financial goals with the confidence that... When you work hard and do your best each day for your clients, your own finances tend to get taken care of too. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Patrick Kilbane. Welcome, Patrick Kilbane, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to, to the discussion today and, and talking about this interesting journey that I, I know you've been through and I and I've seen you know, cropping up more and more lately, which is those who come from the legal profession, having been practicing attorneys into the financial advisor world. And, you know, I, I know you've lived a version of this journey. You you went from uh, divorce and family law into financial advice. I've, I've also seen a number for, that go from the estate planning world, estates and trusts into, into financial advice as well. And, you know, I know some of that is just there are challenges in the in the legal world these days. I think particularly in in the estate world is the rise of legal zoom and such as forced estate planning attorneys into fewer and fewer very affluent clients. And there's a lot you can do in estate planning with affluent clients, but there are only so many affluent clients right. relative to the number of practicing estate attorneys. And I you know I know 
family law's got some of its own challenges and dynamics of just the the messy client situations you deal with. And so I'm excited to hear more of this journey of what's it like to go from the legal profession to the financial advisor profession, like just from the lawyer's perspective, why, why do you make that leap? And, and what's so appealing about the transition from the law side of the business to the financial advisor side of the business? Absolutely. That's a great question. There's a lot to unpack there. I'll tell you, if you haven't litigated especially litigation in the family law context, people often say about people going through a divorce that they're really good people on their worst behavior. In a, in a criminal law, it's really bad people on their best behavior who's, you know, who are going through a, you know, a, a criminal trial. Oh, interesting distinction. Right. Yeah. So when you're litigating your entire day from the time you get up until the time you go to bed is negative. You're getting letters, motions, other court pleadings where, you know, your client is being accused of doing something wrong, violating a contract, not doing something that they agreed to or that they were ordered to do. And imagine being in the divorce context where somebody is trying to take your kids and or take your money. It's a it's a very negative day. I mean, adoptions are some of the only really positive, happy moments that you have in a in a family law case. So I just saw, you know, some financial advisors that I worked with that I would refer my clients to at the conclusion of their case that it was like, wait a minute, I'm doing all the hard work here. These people get to take over working with my client when they've made this unbelievable metamorphosis. And I would run into my client two, three years down the road and they were a completely different person. And, you know, my, my time with that person was you know, maybe a year, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer. And then the wealth advisor gets to, you know, have a relationship with that client, assuming they're doing a good job for decades, maybe. And I was like, wait a minute, I, you know, I, I think I fit in that mold way better than, than I do in the, in the litigation and dealing with the, the negativity all day long. That's an interesting framing that, that like, Divorce, like you only get them short term and basically at their worst, the advisor gets them long term transformed, I guess either either at their best or or you know be, becoming their best and 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 growing and evolving into their into their best. I, I I never really thought about that that kind of juxtaposition. Right. And so now for the last almost decade as a wealth advisor, I've been able to participate and help usher in my client into that next chapter, into reimagining what their life is going to be and giving them the confidence that they can do it. They can start over and they can have their own advisory team and they can do things the way that they want to and the way that they envision the next phase of their life going. So I, I'm telling you, it's been a blast and I, I'm so grateful to be able to have made that transition. So give us then a little bit more of the, I guess, the contextual backstory of just what was your path into law in the first place? Like, how did you get started? Was it divorce and family law throughout? How long were you, were you in that side of the world? So what, what, was, the, what was the lawyer journey for you? Yeah. So the, the lawyer journey, I knew since I was eight years old that I wanted to go to law school. It was when I was eight, that was the George H.W. Bush and Michael Dukakis presidential 
election. And I was just fascinated and captivated by the debates and the conventions. And I told my dad, well, hey, you know, I want to, I want to get in politics. This looks like fun. And he said, if you want to get into politics, you have to go to law school because most of the members of Congress and, you know, people in the executive branch, certainly the judicial branch, they're all lawyers. So I said, okay, fine. I had a one, I had a one track career. Uh, I knew I was going to go to law school. Because you literally wanted to go into politics or because you just wanted to like debate on the stage? No, because I, I really was fascinated and captivated by the politics. And so I said, okay, I, I want to do it. And then the summer between my second and third year of law school, I actually did an internship in Washington, D.C. So I was able to look under the hood and I thought, oh my gosh, who in their right mind would want to run for office and be a part of this? But, you know, law school was certainly a great way to understand how our government works and why it works that way and how laws are made and how they're interpreted. So I moved to Jacksonville, Florida after I get out of law school and I singled out the law firm that I wanted to work at. And I interviewed with them. They liked me and they said, hey, while you were off doing that internship in Washington, we filled all of our hiring needs. But if something opens up, we'll call you. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, (laughs) Yeah. So anyways... Two days after I interviewed with them, they called me up and they said, listen, we weren't kidding. We really liked you and we want you to be a part of our firm. And we have been crunching some numbers and evaluating our workload. And we think that we have the work to justify hiring a family law associate attorney. What do you think? So I have you know the long pause and cover up the, the, the receiver on the phone and go, good God, who grows up and wants to be a divorce lawyer, right? I mean, that's not... That was never something I, I thought trust in estates or maybe, you know, corporate transactions. So you never you never came to this with the journey of like, I want to be on a path to divorce law. That was the like that was the offer that came after you decided you didn't want to pursue the internship you did between second and third year of law school. Correct. Correct. Okay. So so yeah, and I thought about it and I'm thinking, you know, I think I have the skills to litigate. I think I could be pretty good at it. And I know that most litigation associates, people who work in the commercial litigation, they're just thrown in a conference room and their job is to, you know, just help the senior partners deal with discovery, answering interrogatories, combing through banker boxes of documents. But the family law experience would give me the opportunity to get into the courtroom right away and use those litigation skills that I developed in law school and Felt mm. that I, you know, were better suited for my skill set. So I said, okay, I'll give it a try. And they said, all right. And through attrition, if you want to move to a different department, we're not going to make you, you know, we won't keep you in family law forever. Well, fast forward 24 months, we're in, you know, the great financial crisis. And the litigators were essentially the only ones that were generating revenue for the firm because the commercial real estate transaction attorneys weren't doing anything. The land use and zoning attorneys, if you remember back, you know, they, their yep. work had dried up. So, they, you know, I'm, I'm a third year associate doing divorce work and, you know, the higher, you know, the top shelf attorneys in town, because people couldn't afford to pay their rates, they would, you know, some of those those cases that would normally go to them were coming to me at like, you know, one hundred and fifty dollars right. an hour cheaper. Right, because I'm I'm just envisioning right financial crisis, economic distress, financial distress. I I haven't looked up the statistics, but I'm going to guess there was a rise in divorces in the middle of in the middle of the financial crisis when all that 
all that financial stress and the rest is happening. So crisis is on, real estate grinds to a halt, divorces spike, and and you're a divorce litigator in a town with only so many, so many divorce attorneys. So at some point, the business starts rolling down. Yeah, and I had to, I had to grow up fast. I mean, I was litigating against the big boys, the ones who had been doing it for 30, 40 years, who had the reputation, who knew all of the judges. And I, I did it. I mean, it really accelerated the trajectory of my legal career. And I, I learned some really, really unbelievable financial lessons during that crisis. I mean, I saw the people who had no income and somehow owned five houses and qualified for five mortgages right. on these houses. And I mean, I'm in my late 20s looking at this going, you know, it's no wonder the financial system <laughs> is imploding. Because you're you're actually seeing the people who then show up in a divorce trying to figure out like how do you how do you divide the divorce estate of five houses that are underwater because they were all offered with like no doc loans and it's just a a total mess and and you're supposed to split it between two unhappy separating spouses. Yeah, and I Michael, I had to go find real estate agents that got certifications in distressed assets. Remember this was when right. homes were being short sold and you know, all of those challenges. Oh. I mean, it, we talk about equitable distribution or dividing community property. At that time, a lot of it was dividing debt and figuring out the the most optimal way to apportion the debt, not the most optimal way to apportion the assets. And it's so funny. I, I see how hot the real estate market is right now. And I'm thinking, gosh, you know, 12 years ago, some of the properties that that are selling, you know, as soon as the sign goes in the ground, you couldn't give those properties away. Yeah. So it's really, it's really interesting and a lot of, lot of great lessons, but I've always had that. I've always had that interest in personal finance. I studied business and finance as an undergraduate. And, you know, when that opportunity came to do it, I felt like this is my calling. And I was, I'm, I'm able to take all of those skills that I learned as a lawyer and a litigator and transfer them to assisting my clients on the wealth management side. So can you paint a little bit of a picture just for those of us who are just wholly unfamiliar with like the reality of being an attorney, just like, what does that business look like? Like, like, how are you generating revenue? How do you get paid? Because, you know, I'll I'll, later, I, I imagine we'll talk about like what it's like to work and build a practice and 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 earn a living in the advisor world versus the legal world but not many of us know the legal world so like how, just how does that how does that work i mean how was it operating for you running a family law practice within a large larger law firm in jacksonville you you just asked me the best question that anybody's asked me about the legal business and i feel like if this discussion that you and I are about to have, if, yeah. if, if, if aspiring law students had this discussion, I think a lot of them would make different career choices. <laughs> okay. So the business of law is unbelievably challenging. You know, you, you talk about what people see and what people do behind the surface. The law practice is a grind. So I moved to Jacksonville from South Bend, Indiana. I went to law school at Notre Dame. So I, I moved here and I, I know nobody in town. So the way that the way that you get paid as a lawyer is by sending your client a bill for the time that you spend working on their case. 
If you're at the law firm and you're going to lunch or you're in some department meeting or you go you know, to a, a board meeting after work, none of that counts. Firms back in the day would want to see their associates bill hours. Well, the second law firm that I went to work for, they didn't care how many hours you bill. They cared about what you collected. So as a, as a young lawyer, you, you have to figure out, okay, is this client going to be able to pay their bill? I mean, if I do work and I send them a bill, are they going to pay it? The re, you, you hear about the word retainer. So a lawyer asks for a retainer at the beginning of the case because they want to have some money set aside in their trust account to bill against. So that way they, they're not having to constantly ask their client for money. Well, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, you know, who they're not, they're not companies. They don't have the corporate checkbook to pay their lawyer. So you really have to stay on top of the money that you have in your trust account and ask them to replenish it. Otherwise you're going to be constantly reaching out to them to ask them to pay their bill. So I just, I got to ask quickly, cause I don't know. I, I just sort of come from a world where like you and you incur a bill, you pay it, particularly when you incur a bill for professional services, you pay it. And, and I, I feel like right or wrong, like if there was one person I was not going to try to stiff for a bill as a service provider, it would be a lawyer. Cause <sighs> it kind of seems like if anybody's ever going to sue me for not paying my bills, it would be not paying the, not paying the bill to my lawyer. So I guess I guess I'm sorry. Like it is, Serving clients where you send an invoice, they don't pay it. That that big of a problem in the legal profession. And if you're, I don't, and if you're all lawyers, why can't you? Why can't you solve this? Yeah, no, it, it's a great question, and it and it does become a problem. You know, again, think back to the to the financial crisis. I mean, if if you were estranged from your spouse, you know, you're, you're trying to make the mortgage payment, pay the credit card, feed the kids, right. make the car payments make the private school payments and then you lose your job. Right. Well, what priority does that right. you know, that invoice from the law firm uh take? What 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 creditor position do they have? Right. So, yeah, and 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 I and I'll tell you I don't want to generalize about my, you know, former profession, but there are a lot of lawyers that just aren't good business people because they want to go in there and they like to do the work and then they think, "Oh yeah, I got to I've got to actually you know, also collect the money. It's like, but you know, it's different from a doctor's office. I mean, you can't move two steps without them saying, give me your insurance, give me your yeah. credit card, you know, update your information. It, it just, you know, the law, the law practice is just not like that. Interesting. So like just doing legal work and getting non-payment is a, is a real world ongoing challenge in law. And I'm, I'm going to guess like some some areas of law probably struggle with this more than others. I'm, I'm going to guess the estates and trusts attorneys, like if you're planning for someone with a high net worth estate, they're probably good for their legal bill. But I, you know, if I'm sure if you're working with bankruptcy, you got to be careful because they're going through bankruptcy. Right. And, and I'm going to imagine in this context, like you have a very wide range of financial wherewithal when you're doing divorce and family law. So I guess that that becomes part of the process literally when you're deciding what clients to take is if I take this client, do I think they're actually going to be good for the bill at the end? Right. So as a, as a young attorney, you have to learn how to manage your practice, collect your bills, screen your clients. You know, another thing is if a client gets an outcome that they don't like or they don't think, then they just say, well, you know, I'm just not going to pay for that. And so then what your, your remedy is a, a lawyer is to sue your client for non-payment of your bill. I mean, just like, does that, 
it's one of them, but but you know, then you know, it's it's just it's not it's not fun. And and, and look, no, luckily, well, luckily I didn't have to deal with a lot of those yeah. situations. But you know, when you're when you're practicing, like when you go to the doctor, you don't really dispute. You're not sitting in there with your doctor who's you know taking your temperature and listening to your heartbeat, disputing your bill. But with a in a lawyer, you're you're kind of in that situation. So your remedy your remedy is you say, listen. Yeah, this isn't going to work out. I need to withdraw from your case. You need to find a different lawyer. And then, you know, you, you eat, you know, one month's worth of services to render to that client right. or something like that. I like, it's interesting to me just in this context now, right. Of like things we take for granted in, in, in the advisor side of the industry, right. You know, for better or worse in, in a world where he worked on commission, granted you, you, you got to actually get to the sale and transaction to, to get the commission. But like once the client buys the thing, like they bought the things so you are getting yeah. paid. Cause at that point, the money doesn't come from the client. It comes from the company. And even when we work in, in an AUM model, like, you know, I'm not providing services until I'm actually managing assets. And the point I'm managing assets, like I know I'm getting paid because I've got the assets on my platform and I'm going to bill right from the assets. So you know, we still have to manage our billing process, but that this whole idea of being in a realm where you could provide a significant amount of professional services and and literally run the risk that clients just say, nah, I don't feel like I got the value or just don't feel like paying and don't. Like we don't have a collections issue in <laughs> in the advisor world that you're you're painting a really interesting picture of in the legal context. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. So yeah. And then, because the phone just doesn't ring and, and people aren't just throwing work at you, so on top of you know working you know 12, 13 hours, then you got to be active in the bar association, active in community organizations to do all the business development work that financial advisors and wealth managers have to do to get new clients. Right. So, I mean, you think about that. That's a long. That's a long day, and that means that. You know, if you didn't get to that work or you need to bill more hours or collect more fees to, you know, hit your monthly budget, you're doing that on Saturday and Sunday to catch up. Out of curiosity, just because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to imagine how this may translate to the advisor world. Is there a, like, was there a benchmark of how many billable hours you were supposed to be generating or you were trying to generate? Uh, and I and I don't even know how that gets measured. Is that like X hundreds or thousands of hours per year? Is that like a monthly billable hours? Is that a weekly billable hours? Like what's what kinds of targets did you have? Yeah, great question. So I think that varies by geographic region of the country, by practice area. You okay. you hear a lot of. I mean, I, I think if if I had to draw a best fit line, you'd say. You know, young associate attorneys are expected to bill about two thousand hours a year. Bill two thousand hours a year, correct? Because I, I just you know forty hours a week times fifty-ish weeks a year. Like there's about two thousand working hours a year if all like in total, and that doesn't include like professional development or business development or management meetings or team meetings. Like that kind of nothing. Like getting to 2,000 billable hours is like you work a full-time client-facing job with every hour of a 40-hour week, and then you do all the other things it takes to be a professional on top of that in whatever spare time you used to have before you do the rest of what you need to do just to be a, be a practicing professional. That's correct. 
And I mean, just, I'm just thinking that in context of our advisor world, like even highly productive advisors are like 50 or 60% of their time is, is client facing, maybe 70% if you count business development and they're, and they're really leveraged up, which on a regular working year, like super active advisors, maybe get 1400 client facing hours. That would be the equivalent of billable hours in a mm-hmm. law firm. And, and you're starting at 2000. Right. And, and look, when, when you, when you get older and you progress in your career, it, you do things more efficiently. That's right. why your hourly rate goes up and the number of hours that you're expected to, to bill a lot of times may, may, may drop a little bit. What does a little bit mean? Like, you know, when you were, you know, several years into your practice, I means that because it goes from 2000 to 1800 or it goes Correct. from like, yeah, exactly. Okay. So not, not, it's not like it goes from 2000 to 1000. <laughs> Correct. Right. Okay. So, in intensive focus on client facing again just you know 1800 billable hours even at even at that level you know you're talking about almost all of every day of the week doing things that you can directly attribute to and therefore bill to to clients i mean that's like 1800 hours is more than 7 hours a day of actual client like client facing or client specific work that you could tag a billable hour task to that's right. That's, that's a lot by financial advisor standards. Yep. I mean, it's phone calls, emails, drafting briefs, legal memoranda, phone calls with opposing attorneys, yep. meetings with clients, meetings with your staff, preparing for hearings, trials, et cetera. So that I, I just, I'm envisioning in practice, like not only do you have all this like super intensive hourly billing work, but like you're basically doing it with rather unhappy people because just there are divorces that go well and divorces that go less well, but like the pleasant, happy ones don't hire divorce litigators. So I'm assuming you have all this intensive work of, well, I guess, as you said earlier, like people at their worst. Yeah. And I, w- I would say most cases are, you know, they're not the war of the roses that you think of where people are hanging from the chandeliers and drawing the you know line in the middle right. of the floor. I mean, 90 to 95% of these cases are going to resolve without the court having to do any work. You go to mediation. Okay. Maybe sometimes it takes a couple days of mediation, but eventually you get a deal done. And I think that happens for a number of reasons. I, I, I wrote a book, which is called Move Forward Confidently. And I, I describe this process in detail and argue that the mediation day is the most important day in somebody's divorce case because look, our judges are great. They work very hard. They're overworked. They don't have the resources to adequately dig into every case and do their job. So when you're at mediation, you're with a neutral third party who's trying to help you reach an agreement. Not every, you know, neither side is is probably going to be happy, but they are able to use and employ some self-determination in how their assets are going to be divided, how their how custody of the kids is going to be shared and how all and how all that's going to work. And almost as equally as important is it gets people off that litigation tread, treadmill and it turns off the spigot of the legal fees that they're paying to the lawyers. So I think you painted now like a good picture of just like the the pain and challenges of the of the legal world. So so help us understand now what was the like what was the actual pathway to the advisor? I mean, were you doing this as a lawyer? I mean, had you 
had interest in the advisor side? Were you doing this as a lawyer and like seeing what the advisor do and saying like, ah, kind of looks like the grass might be greener over there? Yeah. You know, my, my interest in personal finance started when I was in college. My, my father had the Robert Kiyosaki, rich dad, poor dad books in the house. And I read them and I learned about the concept of passive income. And I thought, man, wouldn't that be great if I could earn money when I'm sleeping? So yeah. I had a I had the mindset to start out and do that. And I bought a Vanguard S&P 500 when I was, you know, or the, the Admiral shares or whatever, yeah. whatever, whatever it's called back then when I was a, a junior in college. And then when I was in law school, I took the excess student loan money that I had at the end of the year and then invested that. Dividends were reinvested. So I I started very early in my 20s investing. And my my now business partner, who was my boss, I represented him in his divorce in 2008. And I think I mentioned to you earlier that when I would represent somebody that needed a referral to an advisor, I would send them to him and I got awesome feedback. So he took me to lunch on, on April Fool's Day in 2013 and was gushing about you know, the professional success that he was having coming out of the financial crisis and how, how happy he was with the growth of his business, his team. And I jokingly said to him, well, you know, if things are going that good, why don't you hire, you know, why don't you hire me? And he said, I'd love to hire you, Pat, but you're never going to quit practicing law. And he, and you know, it really sparked something. He said, I have all of these clients and prospective clients that are going through the divorce process. You know, you've got the fundamental understanding and education to do this work. And I think you can really be an asset to the business by working with the people going through divorces and get them on the right path. So we negotiated for a few months. I made partner at my firm. I checked that box. And then two weeks later, I quit. And then at the beginning of 2014, I joined the wealth management business and have been there ever since. All right, wait, I, I do have to ask quickly, just that, that comment you made of like, I, I made partner at my firm like check that box then and then a, and then a few weeks later I quit. So I, I guess just a brief interlude, like help us understand what partnership means then in a in a law firm context. I, I I mean in the in the advisor world, you know, like we usually escalate someone to becoming a partner because they've got a material number of client relationships they're managing on an ongoing basis. And frankly, it, it's sort of like half you helped to build this, so we're going to let you have a piece of the equity. And half, we need to give you a piece of the equity because that's kind of a golden handcuffs. Because otherwise, you could walk away with all these clients, and then the business wouldn't have the revenue. And like, partnership is a like super retentiony oriented thing in the advisor world. So is is that different in the in the legal world of like what it means or what expectations are about staying or not when you become a partner? So yes and no. I think I think you know generally partnership in a law firm is is very similar to partnership in a wealth management firm. However, law firms have gotten creative as some of the you know the equity partners you know didn't want to dilute their shares. They created junior partners and non-equity partners and and you know and the like, and they they created multiple levels of partnerships. So it sounded great. But then when you saw the compensation and, and what you were being asked to do, it really wasn't much different than 
than being an associate. And and look, I had already known that mm. I was going to make the switch, but you know, if you're working at a 300 attorney law firm, I mean, you want to make partner. And let's say this venture into the financial world didn't work out. I mean, what was I going to do? Go back to a law firm and I didn't promote to partner? Then somebody that I was talking to would be like, "Why didn't you make partner? What ha- what happened?" Oh, there? interesting. So the the escape valve back to the legal world, just like, right, if I, if I do this financial advisor thing that doesn't work out, I can go back to my former profession, which a, a lot of people do when they're evaluating, when they're evaluating becoming a financial advisor, sort of part of the, the fallback safety for you is if I, if I make partner at the firm, then like that's on my resume if I'm ever trying to get back into the legal world in the future. And hey, at the end of the day, like they have they have three hundred lawyers, like they'll they'll be okay if I don't stay. Yeah, and so look, I left. I, I still have an amazing relationship with my former law firm because you know I'm not competing with them, and I've actually right. referred them a ton of business. And by making partner, it brought that safety net up higher. I mean, I'm taking a risk and going into a totally different industry and putting my faith into. You know, somebody who I had a long-term professional relationship with, but I never worked for him. I, I wasn't, you know, in the trenches with him. I, right. I I didn't know what to expect. He didn't know right, right. really what to expect. So I felt more comfortable promoting to partner and then leaving with that on my resume than just, you know, leaving with a few months to go before I actually right. made that happen. Okay. Makes sense. So so now help us understand, like, how does that transition into financial advisor world work when you were a practicing attorney? Like, wh- how just how does that switch happen? Yeah. So like I said, uh, a number of years, the my, my now business partner, I represented him in his divorce. And I think he saw a lot of the same transferable skills that make a successful advisor. We all have strengths and weaknesses. And I think one of my greatest strengths is my customer service. If you call me, if you email me now, if you text me, you're going to hear back from me pretty quickly. And I think Glenn's, Glenn is my, my business partner. I think Glenn's frustration with lawyers is sometimes you call him and you may not hear back for three or four days. And he could just never understand, you know, like in, the, in, in, in his business, that was completely right. unacceptable. That's not a way. That's not the way that you take care of a client. And I think you know, I was always pretty good, Michael, about the out of out of office messages. So if my clients called or emailed, they knew that I was unavailable, why I was unavailable, and when I was going to become mm-hmm. available. And I always, instead of my you know assistant or paralegal picking up the phone when somebody asked for me and they say well, he's not available do you want his voicemail no i had them set an appointment so they knew exactly when we were going to talk so they didn't have to keep calling me back or i didn't have to play phone tag with them we had a set time when when they knew they were going to talk i think it made for happier clients it served them better and they knew that i was being attentive to somebody else and they were going to get my undivided attention very shortly Interesting. So, so Glenn literally experiences in working with you to, and realizes like, okay, Patrick actually gets good client service expectations. This can translate into our advisory firm as well. Yeah. And I, and I think, I, I think he saw the type of cases that I was getting. He saw my business development skills. He saw that I was, you know, somebody who was able to um, develop trust with my, I mean, when you're working with somebody in their divorce, I mean, you learn, you know, we get, all the tax returns, the brokerage account statements, right, and you hear all sorts of other things that you wish you didn't hear sometimes. 
I mean, uh, we're almost privy to more information as divorce lawyers than you would ever be as a wealth advisor. Right. And so I think, you know, I had a reputation for keeping clients' confidences confidential. I developed business. I, you know, was organized, good customer service, great reputation with the judges and the opposing attorneys. And Glenn said, yeah, let's, let's get them licensed. And, you know, I can teach him the substance. I mean, he's can learn different areas of law. I, I, you know, I didn't just litigate family law. I litigated other things and you're, you know, it's, it's constantly learning. I mean, you have, you have almost more designations than anybody else. And you know that if you want to learn life insurance, you crack open the books and you take the test and you earn that certification. So I think he felt like I had the fundamentals, the blocking and the tackling and, you know, get me up to speed and be in meetings with him and learn our process and and learn the substance of, of the the wealth management. And he thought that I, I could do it. I think it, I think it's worked out pretty well. So what was the actual path? Like just I, I guess take take us back then. So you know, you 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 give notice to the law firm. You decide you're going to get going with with Ullman. And so, like, what happens? I mean, like, what did you actually do to get started as you know, highly experienced attorney, complete newbie advisor? <laughs> Time yeah. to get the career going. So it took me probably a month and a half to close down my practice. I finished some cases that I thought I could reasonably finish. I mean, I didn't just tell the law firm like, Hey, I'm out of here in two weeks. I, you know, made a commitment that, you know, I was going to be around for at least two months to get some cases finished and then take some of the clients that I I knew their cases would take a little bit longer and get them to the attorney that I thought was the best attorney to handle their particular case, whether that was somebody in my firm or somebody outside of the firm. And so my last day of practicing law was Black Friday of 2013. And then I thought, well, gosh, you know, it's the month of December. I've got family coming in. I wanted to go visit my elderly grandparents. I wanted to go on a vacation. And I wanted to hang out with my five siblings who were all coming to town over the holidays. And so I I really took kind of a like a month-long sabbatical before I started the new career. And then when I started at Ullman, you know, I would work during the day. I would get to know the clients. Of course, I'm I'm not licensed, and we were with a broker-dealer at that point. So I would come home from work and I was studying for the seven and the 66 and got those licenses. And then I also studied for and, and obtained a, a certification with the acronym CDFA, which stands for Certified Divorce Financial Analyst. So what did you arrange from a compensation perspective as you were getting going? Was the, was the firm giving you a salary or spotting you with dollars? Or was this the decision like, I'm going to come in from scratch and I'm starting from zero, but I've got existing relationships and reputation, I think I can build a client base and build revenue relatively quickly. Yeah. So it was it was salary and bonus. And the and the bonus was discretionary. I mean, let's look at what you're bringing in, how you're progressing. Did you get licensed? Are you adding value to the firm? So yeah, all of the all of those things happened and they continued to invite me to come back to work uh, you know, year after year. So So how do you think about like salary and that opportunity in the advisor business, I, I, don't, I don't know where they started you, but like, I'm going to guess it's lower than what you're billing as an active family law attorney that just made partner. So like, how did dollars match up? And how did you think about the like, just the financial transition of that? Yeah, you know, luckily, I was I was at a time where, you know, I, I lived below my means. I did take a pay cut. But you know, I felt like I felt like practicing law wasn't a challenge for me. 
anymore. I mean, certainly you deal with with novel issues from time to time, challenging personalities. But you know, there there are only so many spots on that checkerboard when you're trying a case. And I felt like I had gotten pretty good at it, and I was ready for a different challenge. And as as we previously discussed, the entire week was negative. So the delta between my compensation. Right. And uh, you know, as a lawyer, and what I was starting out at as a wealth advisor, you cannot put a price on the happiness of going, you know, from a job where you're helping people accomplish their goals and dreams versus, you know, helping you know people try to minimize the collateral damage of the breakup of a family. That compensation wasn't the driver for me. Interesting. Interesting. So you start getting trained. You get familiar with the clients. You're studying for your 766. You get your your CDFA. So two things: like, how did the client part get going? And at the end of the day, were you supporting clients of the firm, or was the whole point like Patrick's going to come on board and eventually get his own clients and build his own client base? So we're we're an ensemble practice. We currently we have five advisors, and when somebody comes on and becomes one of our clients, they're a client of the firm. I don't have my own book of business. If I went, if I left today. I don't bring anybody with me. Okay. So I was there to build service and plan, you know, our our client base. And, you know, one of one of my abilities is I, I I generate business. I had a lot of I had a lot of relationships in the in the legal world and 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 some, you know, friends of mine who hadn't had an advisor and they said, Oh, well, we needed an advisor. You're just getting started. Let's let's give you let's give you and your firm a try. So I had a number of people who were just loyal, wonderful friends who really gave me that initial boost out of the shoot. And then lawyer friends of mine, judges, me, well, the judges can't refer anybody, mediators and other lawyers and you know lawyers on the trust and estate side and CPAs that I worked with, they knew I had the family law knowledge and expertise and experience. And I had referrals coming right out of the shoot. So- how do you just go about, I guess, communicating it back to them, right? At some point, if you want to get referrals from them, they do have to understand, like, Patrick's actually not not with such and such law firm anymore. He's with an advisory firm now. He's doing a different thing. So just how did you go about going back to everyone that you knew in the when you were wearing your lawyer hat to say, hey, I've, I've, I've got this new thing now? I mean, is that a, like social media announcements? Do you send a letter? Is that like... No, I did 50 lunch meetings and just like loaded up the calendar. I mean, how do you actually get the word out and get that referral flow starting? Yes. <laughs> the yeah. answer is yes to all of those things. I did all of those things. I mean, loading up the calendar, emails, lunches, breakfasts, dinners, board meetings, other things that I'm involved in. Yeah, I worked really, really, really hard. Some people got it right away. Some people, some of my professional relationships and friends, it took them a while and they thought, well, hey, you know, this guy was pretty successful as an attorney. How long before he just goes right back into practicing law? Like, is this wealth, <laughs> is this wealth management thing going to actually work out? But is this is this a thing or just a phase? Like, let's I, let's yeah. wait and let's wait and see a little. Exactly. So, you know, three years passed, then I'm there for five years, then six years. And then I think some of the, some people started to say, yeah, he's, he's, he's staying there. He likes it. He's having fun. 
it's working out. Let's let's learn more. Just just this week, just yesterday, in fact, I had a, a friend of mine who I had cases against for 17 years. And he came to an open house that our firm had in the fall. And with all the recent volatil- volatility in the market, he's you know, been calling and texting. I gave him some advice. And finally, I said, you know, why don't you just come in for a second opinion? I, you know, no obligation, but just let me see what your advisors have you doing. And we'll tell you, hey, you know, you're on the right path. You don't need to make any changes, or maybe you need to make a tweak here or here, or, you know, look, we, I think you need to reboot and, and change course. So yeah, I mean, some of those, some of those seeds that have been planted, Michael, over eight plus years, are starting to sprout. Some of them, some of them took right away, and some of them it took a little longer. But it's 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 been a lot of fun. So, what was it that made the early things take take early? Because as I'm as I'm sure you've seen over the years, some other advisors entering entering in the profession, including some people that that do career changing. A lot of people struggle to get much business flowing when they first do a career change. I think because a, a lot of the sort of the perspective that you shared, you people from your old profession for a while, are like eh, we're just gonna kind of see if it sticks for a while before before we go. Not really sure if you're gonna stay in that new thing or boomerang back here. Another great question. I think. And I've thought about this a lot. I think there's some people that you have such a deep relationship with, and some of them have watched you from afar, and they just say, look, I believe in you. I trust in you. I want to work with you. And I know you're young or you're inexperienced in in this area, but... I've known of your of you know the people who run your firm, the partners in your firm, and I want to I want to work with you all. And some people like it, you don't even have to sell. It was just they trust you. Let's go. I, I trust you implicitly. Let's do it. And then you know some other people it took them a while. Like hey, you know you didn't you didn't grow up. You didn't you didn't work at at Merrill Lynch or you didn't go through Morgan Stanley's training program. You know so it it, it took a little while. It took a little longer to earn to earn that trust. And I think you know thank God for my friends in the in the legal profession. One of my favorite meetings, there was a, a boutique divorce firm in town and they, you know, they had a, they had a few attorneys in their office and, you know, they get a lot of the best work. And so I brought my boss and we went to have lunch with them. Just wanted the opportunity to work with their clients if they, you know, represented some high net worth person who needed an advisor. Well, two of the three partners of that firm became clients. They asked us to manage their 401k and then they started sending us their clients. And, and that was in the third month of me making the transition. So I guess I'm wondering, what were you doing in your prior world that you had the depth of relationships that there was so much trust? They just said, Patrick, it's a new thing for you, but you've been good. We trust you. Like, let's get going. I think as we've talked about several times and you've remarked, there's there's a lot of ugliness and high emotions in family law cases. And I think I've got a pretty calm demeanor. I think I was professional. And even though I was in conflict all the time with opposing counsel and the opposing party, I think I did a really good job of treating them professionally and trying to, you know, obviously serve my client's best interest, but also try to figure out the most efficient way to solve the case, not churn it, get the kids out of the system and and get the and get the people moved on with their lives. And I think the judges and the opposing attorneys that I worked with appreciated that. Hmm. And I and I think it 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 transferred into the wealth management business. So what came next in the in the transition? Like I I'm I'm sort of envisioning you you know, like stage one, just you got to get the license and get up to speed. Stage two 
you go back to everybody you ever knew in the perform in the former field and you do the meetings and the lunches and the coffees and the catch-ups and all the different ways to communicate. Like I've got this new thing that I'm doing and a few of them send you some business and the rest kind of do the wait and see thing for a while. But like there, there's sort of a, a wave of that. And then you've, you've talked to all the people you're going to talk to, like you, you told them they've, they've sort of make their decision about whether they're going to start referring to you or not. And then you're just kind of into the new grind of growth and business developments in this new world. So I, I guess the morning, like after you got through the initial wave of, I'm going to call everybody I knew in my former profession and see what I can shake loose. And you just get into the ongoing, now I'm a financial advisor that needs to do some business development. Like what was the, what was the strategy? What was the approach for you at that point? Yeah, well, I, I, and I'll get to that in a minute, but you know, everything in between was meeting with clients and review meetings or being part of those initial meetings, maybe from, from, you know, people who were referred to the firm from other sources and getting to know them and being involved in, you know, preparing their initial plan, learning how our internal process worked. And my now business partner, when I started with him for the first three or four months, I didn't have my own separate office. I sat in his office and I listened to him on the phone all day long. Mm-hmm. I learned I learned by osmosis from him. And, you know, like like you said, the the strategy was, okay, I, I looked at where the firm was getting business from. So obviously you want to do a good job of getting to know those referral sources if I didn't know them. But then I would say, look, from family attorneys, estate planning attorneys, CPAs, here's who I think are the best of breed. Here's who I have really good relationships with. Let's focus on developing relationships with you know these five or six different firms. I mean, maybe you know my world and Glenn's world overlapped sometimes, but a lot of times it didn't. And he was working with, you know, some firms, I I, I don't want to say, you know, whether the law firm, CPA firms, whatever, but he was working with some firms. And I said, let's change our focus and let's, let's go meet with them. We'll go together and let's introduce the firm to them. Because a lot of these people, Michael, didn't even know what, then it was called Allman Financial. They didn't even know what we did. They didn't know what our investment philosophy was. They didn't understand the depth that we got to know our clients and and just the the holistic and comprehensive approach that we take to managing our clients' wealth. So I think spreading that message, it was it was easy to get Glenn in front of these people. I could get the meetings because the people knew me and trusted me, and I could walk into law firm and you know just go right back to the office. I wasn't you know stop like right. who are you? Why are you here? Right, what is this right, about? Right. So it, I, I think that's what really propelled that you know the, the the acceleration of the of the professional trust and the relationship that our firm you know started to develop with some of these firms that I would describe as being best of breed. So then, what does that business development process morph into you on an ongoing basis? That's a really good uh, question. My firm, we are a focused financial partner firm. I think my business development strategy has been very informal. And what I'm working on right now is trying to figure out how to systematize it, how to measure it, how to make it more efficient, and how to go deeper and how to how do I make it bear more fruit. So that's a that's an ongoing process. But I'm working with some of my focused partners on trying to figure out how to make that more systematized and analytical. So what what do you feel like like is the gap so far cuz I mean the the firm is growing so it sounds like some of it is sh- shaking loose and working okay. <laughs> yeah, but you know the, the no firm ever grows fast enough, right? Right. <laughs> or large enough. 
So I think it's I think it's being more mindful and following up and tracking it and looking at what referrals did we get from this source? How much how much revenue per client? What did we what did we send them? What kind of results did they get for our clients? What kind of results are we getting for their clients? And then when you put the data down on paper, because I, you know, again, when when you're a lawyer, as we just talked about, it is so hard. I mean, can you imagine trying to track all your business development work as a right. lawyer after what I just described? And I, I think, you know, doing this in in the wealth management space is gonna allow me to take a step back and say, okay, I looked at all these meetings I had, I've seen the results that I've that our firm has got from these meetings. Now it's going to help me be more intentional in focusing my efforts on, you know, which um, relationships are bearing fruit. And then, you know, go to somebody that I've been working with and think I have a good relationship with and say, how do I become top of mind for you? So help us understand the actual role from the advisor side within the firm. You know, I, I know you've you've got a title of of leading the firm's divorce advisory group. So sure. obviously you 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 had you know a little little bit of a connection to the divorce world in a prior career. Now you're you're doing this from the financial advisor side. So what does what does the firm do with divorce clients now that you're not wearing a family law hat, you're wearing a financial advisor hat? Great question. So we'll have a we'll have a prospect that'll call us because they're thinking about going through the divorce process. And I'll I'll meet with somebody and a lot of times I will be the one who makes the recommendations on what lawyer that I think is going to be best for them. So I normally give them a few names, two or three names, and I want to know what their goals are, you know, certainly what what's the jurisdiction that their case is in. I mean, you know, what county is it? Because you know that makes a difference. I mean, you you want you want to have a lawyer that's in front of the judges in that particular county. You know, some lawyers are really good with custody cases and bad with numbers. There's some lawyers that only want to deal with the the financial cases and want absolutely nothing to do with the kids. And then you know you've got cases with both. So you want to have a lawyer that you know is right. really good on on both sides of those cases. So I will you know I'll I'll help them make that determination. And then you know. <laughs> Look, somebody going through a divorce, a lot of times they're not even thinking about who's going to manage their money at the end of the case. So the way we work is we say, look, if you want us to be involved and help you with your divorce litigation and work with your lawyer, helping you put together your financial affidavit, helping you come up with settlement scenarios and projections and what those are going to look like and how much investment income your portfolio can spin off on a monthly basis how much money, you know, if you get what your lawyer tells me that your case should settle for, what's going to be your monthly budget to run your life? If you want us involved in that and you don't want to think about us managing your money at the conclusion of the case, you can pay me, you can pay me a flat fee. Okay. And then the flat fee will depend on on how much time I and the lawyer think I'm going to be involved in the case. And then there are some people that say, look, I need you to help me manage my money at the conclusion of the case. I want you to manage, I want you and your firm to manage the money. So they'll sign our wealth management agreement. And all of those litigation support services that I just described are included in their asset management fee. And what kind of charge, I guess, if they're doing this as a flat fee, because you don't, you don't know if you're going to be working with them thereafter, like what kind of flat fee do you charge for, I guess you're framing it like litigation support service? 
Yeah. So again, depending on the involvement in my case, I mean, if if the lawyer wants me to be involved in attending mediation with them, if I have to be deposed, if the case is going to go to trial, you know, just trying to ballpark how much time. I mean, I think the the smallest fee that we've quoted on a flat fee is twenty five hundred, and I think the largest fee that we've ever received is fifteen thousand. Okay. And that takes them from the time they hire us through the conclusion of, you know, once the judge grants their divorce. So, you know, they're, they're not getting a monthly statement. They're not, you know, they don't have to watch the clock every time they call okay. an email. And we're, we're just involved to, to help them. And I want to be very clear, in this role, I'm not giving any legal advice. Right. I'm helping them understand the process. I'm, you know, crunching numbers and developing settlement proposals and and scenarios for their lawyer, you know, showing a projection of imputed investment income, if that's what's going to be required and helping them. You know, some of these people, Michael, I'm sure you and, and your firm have worked with them. They have one of those credit cards with an unlimited amount and they swipe and they have no idea how much it costs to run their life on a monthly basis. Yep. So some of, you know, I may be involved in going through and looking all, at all of their spending sources. And today that includes Apple Pay and Venmo and PayPal and all these other ways that money flows right. out that people don't even know about. And then trying to help them understand how much their life costs on a monthly basis. So I, I, I understand kind of the framing of, you know, we work with people that are going into a divorce. We provide this support process along with them, help them navigate, help them work better with their attorney, do some of the, you know, divorce analytics that may be necessary in, in the process. Uh, so I guess I'm wondering, where do these clients come from? How do you get these opportunities? Because if the whole framing is they've realized, you know, like they're thinking about going through a divorce process, and then part of what you're going to do is understand their situation so you can refer them to like the right attorney in the right county that has the right background of whether it's more financial or kids or combination. Like you can't get that referral from an attorney because you're like you're pre-attorney. You're you're the one that's sending them to an attorney. So how do you get in front of these prospective clients in the first place? Where are the opportunities coming from? Yeah, well, so I want to be I want to back up and be very clear like not every person comes to me, you know, pre-going to a sure. lawyer. So a lot of times a lawyer will meet with a client and say, "Hey, you need you need a plan. You've got a lot of money. You need a new CPA. I want to bring Pat and his firm in on the case because we might need we might need him to testify. You need to get set up and we need to get we need to get them involved right now. So a lot of them come from that okay. way. And then a lot of people that I've helped through the process have, you know, maybe they're on a tennis team and you know, one of their tennis uh, partners is going through a divorce and, and and my name will be shared in that group. And I've as I mentioned before, I wrote a book and the book has started to make its way around. And people will call me even from from you know different States and say, you know, I, I want you involved. I, I like I like what you do. I like your experience. I, I need your guidance through this process. Interesting. And so, I guess almost as I view it, it's it's just kind of the immersion effect when you go really deep into a unique kind of specialization area. Because I'm envisioning like you know so, someone who has the legal, actual lawyer legal background and experience to help support through divorce, but is in a purely advisory consultative role because they're not actually your your counsel like that's that's a unique thing unto itself so you you've got an unusual specialization that you know some people can find their way to you some people get referred to you you're immersed into that community so at, at some point the reputation's kind of out there that 
it sounds like that just that's part of how it's coming together. You're making yourself known for a particular thing in how you interact on divorce. That's right. Yep. And and I think as a firm, I mean, we are really highlighting the service and expertise because it's it's very unique. I mean, there are other advisors who can, you know, who hold themselves out and they get their CDFAs, but I just don't think there's any substitute for somebody who's been in the trenches and litigated these cases for a decade. Right. I mean, I, I know I know how it works and I and I have to take continuing legal education and I stay on top of it. And every once in a while I throw my hat in and and do a case pro bono. And so you actually remain a uh unpracticing attorney? Maybe I'll I'll take one one case a year and don't get and don't get paid for it. But as opposed to, I think at least some states, like there is such thing as being uh, like literally a non-practicing attorney. Like I, I, I have my, I have my JD. I passed the bar, but I'm my my license is not active. You, sure, you yeah, have, you have right. kept it active in that context. Yep, yep, yeah. In Florida, you can elect to have inactive status, but no, yeah, I I keep my bar license active, and you know what? I probably I probably will for the rest of my life. It was. You know, it's challenging to get. I, I'll have a death grip yeah. on that thing and never let it go. So are there complications? I, I know some states, there are limitations of like lawyers crossing over to advisory firms and just like the legal ethics limitations of representing representing clients and and also being affiliated with a, an advisory firm, I think basically any non-law firm. Uh, like just how, how do you manage that dimension of it? Yeah, so it's very clear in our ADV that we're not providing any legal advice. And when I talk to clients, I probably remind them in every phone call, I'm not giving you legal advice. And if they ask me a question that I think is calling for an answer that approaches legal advice, I'll say, nope, that's a question for your lawyer, Michael. But I would also ask Michael A, B, and C. Right. Because I know the answer, but I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm seen as giving legal advice, but I want to point them in the right direction. And if they're going to have a meeting with their, with their lawyer, you know, a pretty big meeting to prepare for a hearing or a mediation or a deposition. I mean, I can do a lot of the work to get my client organized to make that meeting with their lawyer more efficient. The lawyer appreciates it because the client's prepared. I know what the lawyer is trying to do in that meeting. The client appreciates it because they don't have this anxiety of they're going into some stuffy law office and they don't know why. Right. They don't know what they're supposed to do. If I can get them ready to go, I, I, I think I, you know, I just support kind of like the ombudsman between the, the lawyer and the client in these circumstances. And it, and it works pretty well. And one other thing is I would bring in a financial advisor from time to time in my cases, and some of them don't, you know, they, they want to be advocates and they want to say, well, you know, you need to get, you need $40,000 a month to live. And that would make my job harder because I knew there was no way I was going to be able to, you know, get a sufficient amount of alimony or assets out of these facts to get right. them $40,000 a month. So I think the, the lawyers know that I know my lane. And if I wanted to be an advocate, I'd still be an advocate. But I don't right. want to be an advocate anymore. I want to be there and support the lawyer and the client and stay in my lane. And so when you're running that divorce lane, how do you translate that into an advisory client or like a traditional, we're going to manage your portfolio on an ongoing basis, holistic wealth advisory client? Like, How do you make that turn if you're starting out with someone in a more divorce context? So I think 
you know, when we first meet with the client, we, you know, tell them that, hey, we, we are a wealth management firm. This is one of the services that we provide. We would like to manage your money at the conclusion of your case. And, and this is what we do. And 95% of those people say, yep, I need you. I want you to be my advisor. I don't know anybody. Let's do it. Interesting. So it's, it's not necessarily like we're going to we're going to do all of this uh, divorce work, and then at the end, we'll make a pitch to do advisory work with them and hope they make the transition and, and stay on. You're actually just saying outright up front, like, we're an advisory firm. We do advisory work. Part of what we do is this particular divorce specialization. So we love to work with you now in the divorce and when you get through it thereafter. Yep. And, and if you're and not how it's set up from the start. Right. And if and if you don't want to make that decision now, that's fine. You can pay us a flat fee to get involved and 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 hopefully you'll see the value that we provide. You'll learn to trust us. You'll feel comfortable. Because look, you know from from doing your work as as an advisor, when a happily married couple comes in and they tell you what their goals are and what they're interested in and what they're trying to do, you can flesh all those things out. If you meet with somebody who's going through a divorce, they're having trouble trying to figure out what next week is going to look like. Right. So I'm very sensitive to not start asking people you know, what they want to do in five years because they got to get through their divorce first. Right. So let's say that they want us to manage their money. Okay, we 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 are building that financial infrastructure as the case, you know, is evolving and we kind of have an idea where it's going to settle. So accounts will be opened up and so on and so forth. Then when the divorce is finished, then we'll sort of say, okay, let's start over. Now let's go through the, all of those initial questions to get to know you, to figure out what your goals, what your interests are, what you value, who are those people in your life that are meaningful to you. Now we can start to envision what chapter two of your life is going to look like now that you've got the divorce in the rearview mirror. Interesting. So what's been the biggest difference between practicing law and being an advisor? <sighs> the biggest difference is there's no emergencies in the financial services world. <laughs> You know, I mean, emergency motions get filed in nights, weekends. I mean, petitions for domestic violence, and and those, I mean, it's it's you know, there's some there's some nasty things. And of course, in the in the advisor world, you know, I would think the closest thing to an emergency you have is when somebody passes away. You know, you got to be all hands on deck at that point. But you know, from a time sensitivity standpoint, it's really not a a quote unquote. I mean, it's a family emergency for sure. But I mean, it's going to take some time to get those things sorted out. But I, I feel like I'm able to take a breath and you know really spend more time getting deep into the work. Where as a lawyer, I think any lawyer will tell you they feel like a lot of times. You're just you're just playing whack-a-mole because there's so much coming at you all the time. So, is there anything that you miss about practicing law compared to being an advisor, Michael? I would tell you that any anybody who's a litigator loves to be in the courtroom and loves to mm -hmm. litigate, just like probably any professional athlete would tell you that they love to play the game, but they don't want to do the ice baths and the weightlifting and the stretching and the massages right. and the and the dieting and the training table. 
it's the it's the same thing with practicing law. I mean, if you could go in the courtroom and litigate, that'd be the greatest job in the world. But I, I think you know the the financial the, the wealth management and the financial planning it's not adversarial. I mean, I'm in there with you know a couple who's trying to get their kids to college or trying to save you know for whatever they want to do for the grandkids or take some trip. I mean, that's fun. That's a lot. That's a lot of fun. And I and I and I have those positive experiences all day long. And then when the people that you're working with are some of your very best friends and family, I mean, like, wow, I get to help people, you know, save, help them reduce their stress and anxiety, maybe help them through a divorce. And it's, it's a, it's a very, very positive week. So what was hardest for you in the transition from going from the legal world to the advisor world? The hardest thing is what other people think you should be doing. Like there were, there were a number of people said that, that said, I can't believe you're leaving the law firm. You went to the law school. What do your parents think about that? What, you know, mm. what is, and, and you know, it's what uh, other people's expectations of you. And, you know, I just, and, and don't get me wrong. There were a number of people that were supportive also. I'm just wanting to like, was that because you were leaving the law firm or was that because you were becoming a financial advisor? Like, I don't know. Like I, Advisors get a bad rep in some parts of the world. I don't. I don't actually know what like l- lawyers in the world you are coming from think of Patrick's you know, become a financial advisor. Yeah, I mean, when you when you think of some of these professions like doctor, lawyer, maybe priest, I don't know. But you know, when when parents say, "Oh, my you know daughter's a doctor, my son's a lawyer," you know, people would say, "Like, wait a minute, you're a lawyer? That's." really awesome. And you just made partner at a law firm and you're leaving it. It didn't matter that I was going to be a wealth advisor. I mean, you could say I'm leaving that to go do fill in the blank. And a lot Mm. of people just couldn't understand it. And they were like, but yeah, but that, but partner at this firm is so prestigious and you know, Mm. you're making this salary and like, you know, but the life's short and you, you gotta be happy and you gotta, I mean, you go through life and I think all of us to some degree are kind of building the plane as we're flying it. Right. And you learn what you're, what you really think you're good at, or how do you change your golf swing from, you know, when you were 20 and you could swing out of your backside versus, you know, having a, a more efficient swing so you could play longer. And I think a lot, I think that, that, that latter part was true for me. Like I was, I was going to burn out and I saw a number of people, you know, lawyers who, you know, had heart attacks and, you know, were overweight and type two diabetes and all these things. And I just knew that, you know, maybe I might end up in that track because I I just was so busy and, and doing it all the time. So what surprised you the most about building the advisory business once you've landed on this side of the business? Yeah. What what surprises me, I mean, I, I think everybody would say compliance, right? I think so much is changing, you know, fee only, fee-based, going from a, you know, the the suitability standard to the fiduciary standard and whether the Department of Labor was gonna implement their rule. I think I think just the the day-to-day business and how things are done is just it just it's always rapidly changing in financial services where there really wasn't much change in the in the legal world on how things are done, right? I mean, you have a phone, you have email, you have Microsoft Word, you know, you have your dictaphone, you go to the courthouse. I mean, there not much really change in that, but just yeah, it, you know, coming from that world to the wealth management world and what the SEC is interested in, you know, this year, you don't experience that practicing law. Interesting. So what what was the low point for you 
this is not a cop out, I promise you, but I don't think there's been a low point. What I may have thought was a low point, maybe experiencing COVID, but really, you know, leading and being out in front and talking to clients and, you know, helping them understand that this is this is part of investing and this is what happens and harvesting losses, rebalancing the portfolio. You know, some of those accounts in 33 days, we rebalanced four and five times. And when we harvested those losses and then clients in 2021 sold commercial real estate and their CPA said, great news, your tax liability is way less because your advisor harvested $250,000 in losses and just offset yeah. all your capital gains there, you know, they'd write me and they say, oh my gosh, what a blessing, what a blessing that was. So I'll tell you one thing that I learned from that is when I meet with my clients, I tell them all the things that we've done for them since the time they were here last. So, you know, because, you know, some of them may think, oh, well, we just see a, you know, four times a year or twice a year or whatever. But I say, no, these are all the things and these are all the conversations that we've had. Most of them, they're, they're looped into. But I, I think, I, I, you know, COVID, the, the COVID, you know, drop in 33 days or whatever, whatever it was, that, that short period of time was, was really, was really stressful. But I learned a lot from it and really took what, could have been a low point into a really positive. And so how do you track this world of just all, all the things you've been doing for them since they last met? I mean, is that a, like you pull it, you like look up in your CRM system, you've generated a report, just yep. how do you yep. actually wrap your head around that? So we use Wealthbox as our CRM and our firm is really diligent that anytime we do anything for a client that, you know, it's, it, we put a note in Wealthbox. And so part of my process and when I'm preparing to meet with a client for a review is I go back, you know, I, I see when their last review date was and I, I, re, I go through all the notes and read and, and see when trades were made and when their account was rebalanced and when we harvest losses. If, you know, 2021, we weren't really harvesting any losses. Right. But, and, and just say, look, these are all of, these are all the things that we've, we've done. This is when I've talked to your CPA. This is why. This is when we've engaged with the estate planning attorney. This is why. This is when I talked to your property and casualty person about getting an umbrella policy in place and, and, and how much. And so I think they appreciate that. Interesting. And, and like, do you turn this into some sort of, I don't know, report or deliverable thing? Or just do you make your notes and bring it up in the conversation when you meet with clients to let them know, here's what we've been doing? Right. Uh, yeah. Just bring it up in the conversation. Okay. So what do you know now about advisor business you wish you could go back and tell you like 10 years ago when you were still just sort of thinking about this? Like, why didn't you get into the advisor business before you went to law school? <laughs> that's what I that's what I would tell myself. But Michael, I'm grateful for the time that I spent at the law firm and going to law school. I mean, I think it's given me it's given me the ability to differentiate myself and our firm. Um, and I don't and I, I wouldn't be where I'm at but for that experience litigating the family cases, going to law school, and really grinding as an attorney. So what advice would you give to other attorneys that are, are maybe thinking about this transition? You know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to do it on your own. I mean, I don't think starting from scratch by yourself is an option. Luckily I had a great relationship with Glenn Ullman and I was able to, you know, hook onto him and he was able to hook on to me in some ways. And he had built the infrastructure. You know, I joined him in 2014. He started his firm in 2002, but before that he was with, you know, he's with Robert W. Baird and Smith Barney. So, you know, he had, you know, he had significant experience. I, I was, I was able to have a really, really 
really awesome mentor. And I think, you know, that's how I would boil down the advice. If you're going to strike out and start something new, find the best mentor that you possibly can. So this is a podcast about success. And and one of the themes that always comes up is just the the word success means very different things to different people. And so you're you're on this wonderful path for building a successful advisory firm after having gone all the way to, to making partner in a law firm. And so I'm just wondering, how do you define success for yourself at this point? I've always been a believer that if you work hard and do the right things and do the best you possibly can each day for your clients, that you're going to get taken care of. I don't have a goal of, I want to earn X or I want to retire at this age. I really believe that success for me is showing up and doing the best that I can with every single client that I have. That's what I care about. I can't control the market, but we can make sure that we get our clients in the best possible portfolio that's going to help them achieve their goals. And if we're going through a period of time that we're going through right now, that we make sure that the portfolio is doing what it's supposed to do. I've never, ever been driven by a monetary goal. Very cool. Though, as noted, sort of the, the, the irony of the reality of that is when you stay that focus on clients and build such relationships and a reputation with clients and serving clients well, that's what ended up bringing some of the referrals and the relationships from the folks you knew in the legal world into the business you're building in the advisor world. No question. No, no question. I mean, that's, that's, that's a collateral, that's a collateral benefit, but you know, anybody who says I want to go to law school because lawyers get paid a lot of money, or I want to be a partner at a wealth management firm because I think they make a lot of money. Those are the wrong reasons to do anything. I mean, if you know a good surgeon, they're not motivated by money. They take that Hippocratic oath and right. they want to make sure that they can help their patient heal and, and you know get to the heart of whatever's ailing, ailing them and get them fixed. And it, it's the same thing. If, if you're a professional, I mean, look at, look at you. I mean, who in their right mind yeah. would take all of the tests and get all the certifications that you have if you just weren't totally passionate and engrossed about yep. wealth management and financial planning. Yeah. Well, amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Patrick, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. You're welcome, Michael. This was this was great. And I um, really appreciate you inviting me to, to come on and just wish you all the best. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.